0: Election to the 9th Congressional District, um, William Keating and Peter Tedesky. Uh, I want to remind you that the election will be held on Tuesday, November 6th. And for those of you who came in late, my name is Shannon Jenkins. Um, I teach over at UMS Dartmouth and I'll be moderating this evening's debate. Um, my role here tonight is to ensure that tonight's debate is fair, to make sure the candidates ask the questions, uh, answer the questions they are asked, and most importantly, to help make sure that district voters are given the opportunity to learn more about these two candidates who aspire to represent them in our nation's capital. Before we get started, I want to start with some information and some ground rules for you all, so we all know where we're going. Um, the questions put to all the candidates tonight were developed by the South Coast Alliance. They focus on both state and national issues, uh, or state, local, and national issues. Sorry, we're to get you guys out of the light. We're at a weird angle, so after I get this, you don't have to look at me for the rest of the night. Um, each of the candidates will be given the opportunity to make a, a one-minute opening statement at the beginning, or two minutes. I'm sorry, two-minute opening and one-minute closing at the end. And then um, the order of responses on those was determined by a coin toss earlier this evening. We'll then go through, after the opening statements, a series of questions. Um, each candidate will be given two minutes to respond to a given question. And then, at my discretion, I may give the candidate who responded first a one-minute rebuttal. Okay? But generally speaking, we won't be doing rebuttals, but if we need to, we'll, I, I can have discretion to do that. Um, I'll pose the question to both of you before so first person and then I'll pose it again before the second person just so you know Um, Our timekeepers are right up here at the front They'll provide you with a warning when you have 30 seconds remaining 10 seconds remaining and then when you're done Um, You've agreed to abide by these rules. I've agreed to enforce them Um, So hopefully we should have a good evening and I want to talk a little bit about ground rules for the audience Um, again, please take a moment to turn off silence your cell phones Um, Please leave any signs, right, or anything like that um, down on the ground. Some of you may have brought them in, but please don't hold them during um, the event, so we don't want to ruin anyone else's sight lines. Um, And I ask that you remain respectful during this process. We're here to learn about where these candidates stand on the issues that are important to us. um, So let's not distract from that. Um, Given that our time is limited, I'll ask that you refrain from expressions of support or disagreement during the, the debate. Um, I know we care passionately about these issues, um, but the more time we have to spend dealing with that, the less time we get to hear from our two candidates. Um, I've had the honor of moderating a lot of debates down here on the South Coast, and each time I've taken great pride in the fact that these debates have been a respectful exchange of ideas, even when we disagree um, with the positions being articulated on the stage. Um, And so I'm hopeful that we can continue that tradition this evening. Um, now I know I just asked you all to be silent throughout the debate, but I'm going to uh, ask you to break that rule right now and um, uh, to welcome, join me in welcoming the candidates, Representative William Keating and Mr. Peter. Johnson. Okay, so we're going to start off with the opening statements. Those are two minutes each. Candidate has two minutes. Um, And again, the order of these statements was determined by a coin toss earlier this evening, and I hope my information is correct, that Mr. Tedeschi will be giving the first opening statement this evening.
1: Thank you, Shannon. Thank you very much, and welcome, everybody. Thank you, Congressman Keaton, for being here. Um, Actually, this is the fourth of our debates, and I think they've been very civil so far. Um, We agree to disagree on some things. That's the nature of politics. My name is Peter Tedeschi. My wife, Kathy, and I are lifelong residents of this district. I'm the former president and CEO of my family's business, Tedeschi Food Shops. Uh, I'm a husband, a father, and a grandfather. And I'm looking to represent an area that I'm proud to call home. Um, as the president and CEO of Tedeschi Food Shops, there's many things that I'm proud of. Uh, this is an opportunity for me to give back to an area that has allowed me and my family to realize the American dream style of my immigrant grandparents that came here at the turn of last century. Uh, during my time at Tedeschi's, there's many things that I'm proud of. Um, but some of them have little to do with business itself. Things like being Best Buddies Employer of the Year. Things like being the number one employer of Friendship Home members during my time and tenure as CEO at Tedeschi's. For those of you who don't know, Best Buddies and Friendship Home are two fantastic organizations that do great work supporting folks with developmental disabilities in our communities. Um, so, this is an area, a uh, uh, place and an opportunity for you to be not to give back to an area, uh, but also, like many of you, I'm very concerned with what I see taking place on Capitol Hill today. Partisan bickering, uh, we have discourse, and you know, the fact of the matter is we have uh, my congressman right here. Uh, he's been in office 41 years. He's a 4 term congressman looking for his fifth term. I, on the other hand, believe in term limits. Um, I believe that uh, we should serve no more than three terms. That's how pledge to do that. If elected, I promise to uh, help to pass term limits in Congress to the best of my ability. I believe we wouldn't have a lot of the problems we have today. Uh, I have the support of Governor Charlie Baker's endorsement. I want to be his voice and his partner on Capitol Hill to promote not only who's doing the things like opioids on a state level, but also take that nationally. So I want this to be about people, not about party. I know that if I'm elected, I'll always put people first. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank
2: you, Shannon. Thank you, Peter. Thank all of you for coming. You know, I've been fortunate in my life to have a fighting chance. Uh, My grandparents came here uh, and immigrated to the U.S. and they had nothing. Uh, I've had the chance to be a letter carrier and and to work and and to pay for my own way through college. I've been able to start my own small business and I've been able to pay it forward by founding a charity uh, that deals with uh, victims, childhood victims of sexual assault and abuse. I've had the honor of public service as a DA running the largest uh, law firm in our entire county. And I've had the honor to be a legislator, where I learned to find common ground and work across the aisle. In fact, in this Congress, of 435 members, I am the fourth uh, most effective in getting my amendments passed, which is a very tangible way to measure bipartisanism. Now, regrettably, common ground is lacking in our country at a time when our fundamental values are under attack. Freedom of religion, freedom of the press, rule of law, and this is really important. It's also lacking in a time when our health care rights and protections are being taken away from us. Cutting the guarantees for pre-existing conditions, for opioid treatments, for prescription coverage, and even going back to the days when women are being charged more than men for the same health care. And there's a health care effect that's there with the tax bill as well. trillion unfunded, and how's that going to be paid for? Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan both agree, by cutting Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. So this is the most important election in my lifetime, and I'm asking you to support me to be part, hopefully, of a new majority that will send checks and balances to administration and a Congress that's gone off the tracks. I'll find common ground where it's there, but I will never be silent. When our rights and protections are being taken away. Thank you.
0: Thank you. All right. So now we're going to move on to the question part of the, uh, the debate here, and um, it's my understanding that uh, Mr. Tyszka, you're going to go first on this. Okay. okay. So the federal government is currently engaged in an effort of deregulation as it relates to environmental protection. Yet scientists say we may be in the last days of being able to address environmental disasters related to climate change. How would you address the issue for the heavily coastal 9th district? Should the federal government be subsidizing insurance in non-safe areas? Um, and what can the federal government do to promote climate resiliency?
1: So this is a, this is obviously a very important question for our country. It's particularly relevant to this district. Uh, I'm looking to represent a district where nearly 80% of the towns are coastal. And we've seen the detrimental effect that rising sea levels have had on our communities. I live in a town of Marshfield where last winter we were devastated um, by floods that came in during lunar high tides. Uh, we've had seawall breaches, so it's, it's real, and it's getting worse. Um, we need to do more to uh, promote green energy, renewable energy. We see opportunities for that. It's only the right thing to do, uh, ecologically, it's the right thing to do for, for a jobs perspective as well. Um, we can be part of the green economy, I think that is very important. And the federal government plays a big role in it. And one of the things we find is people in our area pay some of the highest flood insurance in the country. It's, it's, it's exorbitant, uh, it's disproportionate compared to other folks in similar areas. We need to do more. I support the, the Monomoy Plan, um, which helps and is one of the ways a lot of people in coastal areas are able to afford uh, flood insurance. But I think the federal government needs to be involved. I think the federal government needs to promote um, greener energies. Well, I think one of the mistakes we made, and, and one of the things you are got to find about me is we talk about the need for bipartisan collaboration, the willingness to stand up to your own party. Um, here's an example where I disagree with my own party. I don't believe we should have pulled out the Paris Climate Accord. Um, we should have stayed in it and tried to make it better because uh, it's important. People look to us as a world leader. We need to do everything we can to promote renewable energy People look to the United States as a leader, and we need to make sure that we're there. So that was a mistake. Um, I would have fought to have stayed in the accord, uh, but again, I think it's particularly relevant. We need to work with the Army Corps of Engineers to ensure that our seawalls and water mitigation uh, efforts are in place, so that when water does come ashore. We have events like we had last winter. People are not affected. We have too many businesses, too many individuals, too many folks are adversely affected by rising sea levels. Right, so now.
0: Congressman Keating, um, how would you address the issue of climate change for the 9th District, and should the federal government be subsidizing insurance in non safe areas, and what can the federal government do to promote climate resiliency?
2: Well, thank you. I agree uh, with Peter in terms of the Paris uh, uh, Climate uh, Agreement. Uh, It's a real step backwards for our country. Uh, I've been working here, right in the Bedford area, too, trying to deal with some of the effects of these things. Uh, For instance, the barrier protection out of the harbor. Uh, we gained monies for that. So that's out there trying to get that important coastal infrastructure in place. It was federal funds that were funneled through the state for the dredging, $1.5 million in dredging that's there that will not only deal with that those effects, but also help our economic development around the terminal as well. Uh, I founded on the House side, and I've been the leading advocate uh, with Jack Reed on the Senate side for the Southern New England uh, Uh, Water uh, Protection Act, which deals with uh, estuary protection and funds that are dealing with air. These funds are currently going right into our district uh, where we are, uh, I think, the laboratory experiment of what we can do in a cost-effective way to deal with coastal resiliency. You know, I serve in the Congress, as you mentioned, Shannon, where uh, they're doing away with all, they say it's regulations. Many of these things are protections. Uh, Cutting back on monitoring our groundwater to make sure uh, that we can drink it. Make sure that it's not toxic, something that we've fought uh, in this district time and time again. Uh, making sure our air quality is clear. Uh, these things have all drawn back. they put regulations back where there's more pollution from certain industries than the thing that cause birth defects uh, and cancer and children. Uh, and in terms, when they can't change that, they're cutting back an enforcement as well. Uh, with a new house, we'll be able to have greater oversight off of this. Flight insurance, I've been the leader, I think, in the Democratic side of a. Uh, bipartisan coalition on flood insurance. It's only good till November 30th. It's hurting our economy because you can't even close on real estate if this is kicked down the can time and time again. The government has a role uh, in dealing with this, but I think we should deal with this as we do fires uh, in part of the country, earthquakes, other natural disasters, and have the government fund that there, so actuarially we'll go through. Uh, I've also uh, put through an amendment that will, in Barnesville County, the same, Thing has uh, resulted in five to fifteen percent reduction in flood insurance thank you. It's a lot of environmental issues.
0: there's a lot yes and I also want to remind I don't I don't want either of you to throw your neck out in the home stretch of the, of the campaign here so you don't have to look back at me I won't be offended I know we have a little weird setup here so I, I appreciate that we ever eye contact but I don't want any of you to uh, you know throw that neck out there so the next question the first response will go to mr. Keating. Um, who will you support as the next Speaker of the House, and what are your priorities in choosing who you will give your support to?
2: I was one of 60 uh, Democrats who signed a letter uh, to our leadership to delay uh, the process of selecting a speaker and to delay the adoption of rules. What happened every year is right after the election, people would come in, and no one had a chance to run. Uh, right now, I'm open to any candidate in that regard, and people say that, uh, and, and you know they talk the talk. Uh, Uh, But I've walked the walk. Uh, Those of you who might recall, I stood up to my own leadership. I stood up to the most powerful Democrat in Massachusetts, Bill Bulger, and took him on uh, to bring rules reform to the Senate. So when I say that, I I mean it. Uh, We have an obligation to go forward, but the rules we'll be talking with are important as well. Now, one of the things that's interesting that I think our party should look at that the Republican Party has adopted as part of their rules is instead of term limits, I call them power limits. And they'll put uh, a six-year term on the amount of time someone can be a chair of a committee. And I think that's healthy. It still gives the people in their districts the opportunity to vote for whoever they want, but it it really moves away from this situation where people age into a chairmanship and never leave. Uh, And so, actually, I'm proposing and supporting an effort uh, on the Democratic side to adopt those same rules that they have on the Republican side For power limits. So, all these things will help, uh, I think, a a democratic process. But there's one thing I'll tell you I will never support anyone that will refuse to put important bills on the floor for a vote. And that's what's happening. It's what's happened on gun safety issues, no votes on the floor. It's what's happened in the DACA bill that would receive, I think, over 70% bipartisan support, never put on the House floor for a vote. We have to make sure, if we're going to have a Democratic uh, operating Congress, that bills come to the floor for a vote. Uh, And so those are my strong feelings. Uh, I think it'll bring bipartisan together, because if a bill is on the floor for a vote, you'd be amazed how many people on both sides could vote for it.
0: Thank you. Mr. Tedeschi, who would you support as the next Speaker of the House, and what are your priorities in choosing who you will give your support to?
1: So I'm looking, in terms of who I'm going to support, um, it's premature to you. Speculate. Um, I'm looking for someone that's not so much party-affiliated. I'm looking for someone that's going to support the agenda that I have for the folks in the 9th Congressional District. Um, we talked about partisan politics. The unfortunate fact is, uh, Congressman Keating ranks dead last in the Massachusetts delegation, in terms of the bipartisan index. And he ranks 364th in Congress. It's the bottom 16%. Votes in his own party, 95% of the time. I'm looking for someone that's looking to transcend what it means to be part of a party, and to start doing the work of the people again. And um, I would like to I it to Congress to make that determination, um, but I would certainly like me to meet people, get to know them, and have them get to know me uh, before I cast my vote. Uh, but whoever it is, they really need to look out for the benefits of the folks in this district and this country, and not just carry water for their own party, whatever party it may happen to be.
0: Okay, so we're going to move on to our next question, and this deals with um, the fishing industry here in the South Coast. Um, Mr. Chesky, you are first on this question. So what actions would you take up to clear up the gridlock um, with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration um, over a convicted fishing boat owner, Carlos Rafael's fishing license that would help New Bedford ground fishermen and women work again and allow the industry to thrive?
1: So a few things. Relative to Carlos Rafael, I think it's, uh, it's, it's very unfortunate. Um, uh, I would have been fighting to make sure that two things happen. A, that the fishing ban was lifted sooner than it is, okay? Um, that's been that's been way too long in making. And I'd be fighting to make sure that the federal fishing licenses that are in play stay right here in the bedroom where they belong. Number one fishing port in the country. Um, other things we need to do is um, things like, you know, if I were a congressman, if I were already in Congress, I would have fought President Obama's unilateral signing of the Monuments Act. For those of you who don't know, it put 5,000 square miles of fertile fishing area off limits to our commercial fishermen. That's just wrong. Um, I also would have voted in support of reenactment of the Magnuson-Stevens Act. Congressman Keating voted against it. The only uh, Massachusetts part uh, of the delegation that did was Congressman Lynch, who's just to the north of us in the eighth, because he knew it was important to the fishing community. You've had members of your senior political environment here say they were for it, they wanted to see it happen. You had fishermen saying that they needed it. Congressman Keating voted against it, I would have voted for it. Um, So I think there's a lot that we can be doing. Because at the end of the day, we're talking about a very important industry in this area, we're not just talking about fishing. We're talking about the folks that make and repair the nets, that sell the fuel, that make the ice, that transport the fish, that process the fish. At the end of the day, we're not just talking about those groups, folks. We're talking about people trying to put food on their families' tables. And I will do everything I can to fight and make sure they get a fair shake, that those boats get back out to sea as soon as possible.
0: Thank you. Congressman Keating, um, the, the fishing industry, fishing licenses,
2: um, and allowing the industry to thrive here in New Bedford. Well, thank you. And uh, uh, let me tell you, the relationship we've had uh, with the fishing industry throughout our whole district has been extraordinary. I want to thank him for that. Uh, Magnuson Stevens is a good case of our coordination. You see what happened. And this is what happens when you don't have uh, bills coming to the floor, when you don't have hearings the way you should. And Magnus Magnuson Stevens' bill, Two and a half days before it was scheduled to be out, they rewrote the whole thing. From the front page back. And so we were working with our fishermen here in our district saying, What's in there? What's going to happen? And then we found out, we found out with the bill that Peter would have voted for uh, and that I voted against, that they would have lost their quota with this. That they were going to give more to the recreational fishing uh, aspect and take away from the ground fishermen. Take away the quota that they can catch from the brownfish. Sure. That's why I voted against it, and it was because we worked together. Now, that bill is going nowhere, fortunately, uh, but it will be dealt with in the Senate sometime. And what was I able to do to try and put some very important pieces into that bill moving forward? Uh, I dealt with one of the biggest issues that we could deal with here, and that's the uh, institution of electronic monitoring. So I worked in a bipartisan fashion. They supported it. I'm a minority member, but they supported putting that in and making that in the Northeast be done by 2020 and taking the fees and fines and paying for that implementation, paying for their monitoring, paying for the things that fishermen are paying, $700 to $800 a time. They bring anything forward in that regard. Uh, We'll continue to work together. On the monument issue, uh, I must tell you this. I worked on, on that. I worked with Senator Markey on that. Uh, We worked together. That was reduced as an area. We still weren't happy. We wanted a a meeting in Bedford. We got it. Uh, But that's an executive action. And when you're talking about standing up against your own party, remember this. I stood up against the Obama uh, administration on this issue and fought it. So I'll stand up against my own party when it's necessary to defend the interests of my district.
0: We're going to pivot to education um, on this question and the role of the federal government here. Congressman Keating, you are first on this question. Um, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos is in charge of weakening Title IX regulations that protect women and favoring charter schools. Um, Secretary DeVos says she's trying to protect due process and that charter schools have helped urban education. Where do you stand on these issues and the Secretary's approach and the role of federal government in education?
2: Well, timeline is very important. Uh, it's something that we've worked on, uh, and, and some of the issues that the Secretary has been involved with uh, are troubling to me as well. She's pushing back, too, on, on issues there where there were standards to protect uh, people on sexual assault issues. I was a district attorney. I had colleges and schools in my district. We were involved in this. We were involved in preventing these things from happening. It's so critical uh, in that setting. Uh, that people are protected, and what she's done, pulling back on that, uh, I think, is a big mistake. Uh, on charter schools, uh, I have not. We uh, the have them. Some of them work. Uh, I'm not a big fan of charter schools because it's pulling money away from the public school area. And right here in New Bedford and Fall River, uh, pulling away public money uh, is critical. In fact, I've been fighting the House leadership when they were taking money out of Head Start, preschool, the most important money that we could put in, and the most cost-effective that we can put in, uh, and making sure they're here. It's critical. If you're gonna have uh, uh, an economy that thrives here in these areas, uh, if you're gonna have uh, good jobs that pay well, uh, and you're gonna have to deal with, uh, education is one of the primary issues. So I'll continue uh, to fight for these issues. I'll continue to make sure, because cities like this can never thrive the way they could thrive uh, without having a fundamental education in place. It's one of the most important issues we have. We can do more, as a matter of fact, in terms of vocational education and other areas because we need this as a foundation. The average person getting out of high school is going to change jobs 16 times in their lifetime. And if they don't have a basic education to do that, then they won't be able to be effective. That's why we push money and our supported money here for the transition from high school uh, into college in that regard, making sure uh, that people don't fall within the cracks as they advance their education.
0: Thank you. Mr. Fedesky, uh the question dealt with uh, Title IX regulations and charter schools, um, and whether or not you agree with the Secretary's approach
1: to these issues. So, any, anything that uh, opens a door, makes sexual assault, even then obviously I'm against that or any type of discrimination that's involved in the process. Um, that's just not who we are. Um, that cannot be allowed. Um, when it comes to education in charter schools, what I want to do is I want to make sure that we're able to afford our children the best education possible. It's the future of our country. They are the future of the country. And my wife always has a saying when it comes to how we treat our children, how we educate our children, you can pay me now or pay me later. And it seems to me we need to do a better job paying up front. And making sure we have a brighter future for them, brighter future for our country. Um, when it comes to things like vocational training and education, uh, I'm all for it. I think it's a great, a great idea. Um, you have one of the best vocational technical schools in the area right here, and um, you know, look uh, for a lot of folks. That is a better option than going to college and getting a college, uh, having a college loan hanging over your head when you come out. When we go around and we talk to businesses throughout the district, one of the things we hear over and over again is. I do not have enough people that are technically qualified. So the fact of the matter is, technology is going to be able to replace a lot of things moving forward. Truckers and other things. But folks, it's going to be a long time before technology is going to be able to replace a plumber, an electrician, or a carpenter. We need those types of help. We need that out. We need it desperately. Um, you've figured that out here. We need to take that model and expand it further elsewhere. Um, so when it comes to higher education and things like that, um, I applaud the governor's efforts. He's done some great things. One of the things he's actually done is allowed high school students to start earning college credits while they're in high school. So they'll have to take less and get less college credits, pay less money when they go for the secondary education in college. Those are the type of things we need to think differently, and think smarter about this, with the goal of making sure that we provide the best educated workforce possible, that everybody has an opportunity to realize their full potential.
0: Great, thank you. So we're gonna come back around to higher education later, but um, I'm gonna stick with the order here so I remember the order in which you are responding. And we're gonna um, look at manufacturing next. Um, so Mr. Tedeschi, you're the first on this, right? American post-industrial cities have lagged behind and redeveloping themselves for many decades. Um, what approach would you take to rebuilding manufacturing in cities like Fall River and New Bedford?
1: So when you look at places like New Bedford and Fall River, They already have what we call the bones and all the makings. Obviously, they had an industrial renaissance here that took place. You have a lot of the infrastructure, you've got a lot of the buildings in place. And what we need to do is incent businesses to come and to work here. You've got an eager workforce. And we take a look at things like um, South Coast Rail, for example. A lot of people look at South Coast Rail as a way to give people in this area an opportunity to get work elsewhere. Um, I view it a little bit differently, although that's certainly one of the things that we would look for. Um, I really think when I look at some of the things that people like Mayor Mitchell and his team are doing in this city, um, I see this as a place where South Coast Rail could be a way for people to come and to work here. Um, We've got the foundation we need. We've got a lot of infrastructure. i visited a lot of the uh, older buildings that have been repurposed. Um, Those are the type of things that a lot of places don't have. You have them here in abundance based on your proud past. Um, We need to make sure that we leverage them so that you can have an even prouder future moving forward. And I'm confident we can do that. And I think there are things you're looking at like tax subsidies and things like that to encourage people to come here. But certainly you also need to have affordable housing, which we have here in abundance. We uh, also have a lot of other good things going on to make sure you've got strong neighborhoods. You've got a uh, neighborhood task force uh, that the mayor put together. And basically it's going around to make sure that people are taking care of their properties. Landlords are doing their part. Um, all those things are important because people should be proud of where they live. And uh, I'm very encouraged by what I see taking place here in New Bedford. All right, Congressman
0: Keating, manufacturing in cities like
1: Fall River and New Bedford. You
2: know, a great example. I've been to the New England Shirt uh, Company in Fall River. I've seen where they've hit a niche in terms of manufacturing, in terms of shirts, and how they've dealt with that. I also know how hard it is. And I'll tell you what's making it uh, so much harder right now, and that's the imposition of tariffs and the retaliatory tariffs that are coming back. A lot of our manufacturing in our region. Uh, is a niche type of manufacturing where they've hit a a little hole that they've really made themselves uh, more competitive than China because of the quality or the modifications they could do. Well, guess what's happening to those companies right now? We're getting calls in our office right now where they're afraid they're going to go out of business. They're getting affected by the tariffs that are there. Aluminum, the steel tariffs, the other tariffs that are coming. And and that's going to hurt manufacturing type businesses the modern ones, in our area. I'm working so hard to avoid it as a ranking member dealing with trade and foreign affairs. In fact, I'm going to go the other way for free trade. And I've been working with everyone at the table to make sure that, that is stopped. And it should stop. It's a loser's game, trade wars. Uh, so, uh, we have to look, too, at the new manufacturing that's there. You know, we just had a meeting with $1.2 million grant, uh, something I was intimately involved with, with uh, Hugh Don, who uh, used to work with us. and. Uh, UMass, all the academic institutions that are here uh, throughout the whole south, south Coast, as well as corporations like Lockheed or Hydroid that, that are in the manufacturing of new technology, the next-gen blue wave companies like Underwater Robotics. These are areas where we have to, gear, DM, to gear, actually gear in our interests and our resources. It's a three-step process and we're in the first step already. Uh, next step will be actually begin to have a plan and implement it on the third year, we can become the Silicon Valley for marine science and technology in the whole United States, if not the world. The foundation is here, the educational institutions are here, uh, the companies are here, so this is something to be excited about, and that's the type of manufacturing Will there be jobs that uh, pay twice what the average jobs are uh, and have real-world potential in the future.
0: I'm going to exercise a little bit of moderator's discretion here. I'm going to ask you to do a one-minute sort of, not just rebuttal, but more of a follow-up uh, about the issue of uh, tariffs um, and manufacturing and your position on the tariffs that have been imposed. So relative
1: to tariffs that have been imposed, look, uh, I, I think that uh, sometimes tariffs are necessary. They should be uh, short in duration. We shouldn't allow the other folks to know how long they're going to be. But they should also be targeted with a desired result. What is it you're trying to accomplish when you accomplish it? you to remove those tariffs? Um, but the fact of the matter is, when it comes to tariffs, there are often unforeseen consequences. In the case of the most recent tariffs, we've seen it. A perfect example, cranberry growers. Uh, we had other countries who we, imposed uh, tariffs, tariffs on, slapping uh, tariffs, delete tariffs on cranberries, trying to get back at Speaker Paul Ryan because his district happens to be one of the largest cranberry producers in the United States. Um, so when we take a look at that, we have our own cranberry growers in this district. We need to be looking at different ways to help them make a living. A perfect example, let's think differently about this give them opportunities to raise additional crops that that are not cranberries in the same box that they have today. We just need to look at the problem and try to solve it in a different way so they can continue making a living for them in their family. Uh, Mr.
0: Keating, would you like a one minute follow up there? Yeah, one minute please.
2: uh, Thank you. You know, experience does count, by the way. And when we talk about cranberries, uh, cranberries were in that retaliatory tariff that were there. Uh, I used the contacts I had, the influence I had with the European Union that I work with as a ranking member uh, dealing with this issue that founded a, a, an agreement for free trade. And you know what? The only product they dropped out of all of those retaliatory tariffs was cranberries, uh, And that was at my request, and they did it. Uh, and it saved $34 million to our companies here. Uh, worth pointing out that as we uh, might look uh, these days and saying, well, experience shouldn't matter, it does
0: okay we're going to uh, talk a little bit about offshore wind here now mr keating you are uh, the first response on this question um, offshore wind has huge potential for massachusetts and the entire east coast the ninth district is in the middle of this growth with the first state project underway here now how will you hinder the differing needs of communities in the ninth district with regards to development of this industry and what do you see what do you see as the future of wind on both sides of the Bourne bridge
2: Well, I think that uh, this is one of the more exciting areas uh, for our whole region and for New Bedford. Uh, I believe that uh, we're well on our way to being uh, the area where there's 25% of all the harnessable offshore wind right in our area. It's part of what we're going forward with here. Uh, It's clean energy, it's important, but it also provides opportunities for jobs and industrial growth. So this is something that's a a passion for me. Uh, We lost, uh, initially, the support for the production tax credit that would make this affordable and move this project forward. Uh, and I fought the Republicans in the House. Uh, I used the leverage I had with other people that are really invested in this issue and we're able to get that rep- re- uh, production tax credit back in place and the people will tell you that was <coughs> integral to, to moving forward on this. So these are areas too uh, where we should have job training and growth. Uh, I've been talking to the people that are together going forward on this, and I've been using whatever influence, I think, pretty effectively to say, if there's jobs here in construction, they're here in New Bedford. Uh, if there's jobs for training for the new these new jobs, it's here in our region. Uh, and that's important to advocate for as well. So uh, I'm a supporter on many fronts, the larger sense that it's clean and renewable, uh, and what's important for our, our district in that respect, but also the new jobs that are right here uh, that can be created off of this industry.
0: Thank you, Mr. Uh, Chinescu. Uh, how will you handle the different needs of communities in, in the ninth district with regards to the development of offshore wind and what do you see as the future of wind on both sides of the Warren Bridge?
1: Sure, so renewable energy is obviously important for a lot of the reasons we talked about relative to our ecosystem here. Um, but it's also important because we have Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant going off grid next year. Um, and that's the right thing to do, by the way, because it's reached end of life. Uh, there are safety concerns and things like that. But the fact of the matter is, it does supply, by some estimates, as much as 40% of the electricity to this area. Um, so, having offshore wind that's gonna produce 800 megawatts coming online, with the potential of scaling that to 1600, um, is very exciting indeed. Uh, we need to be mindful of a couple of things. One, um, what could be the effect of the fishing industry? So we need to, make sure that our fishing folks are a part of that conversation. Um, but I do agree, it's the right thing to do for Massachusetts, right thing to do for this area, uh, and it's a job creator. It's a, it's, a, it's a win-win situation. Um, the other thing is we need to look at other ways to uh, harness renewable energy. Meeting with folks at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and Mass Maritime, one of the things we talked about was capturing tidal energy. Think of the Cape Cod Canal as a perfect example. You said on the other side of the bridge, right there. Um, They're looking at ways to do that that don't impact maritime trade, that will not affect species that actually inhabit the Cape Cod Canal. Um, I think we can be a leader in this area. Um, We are set up for it perfectly. Again, um, 80% of our towns are coastal. Uh, There's a lot of opportunity, a lot of upside here uh, on a number of different levels. and I think we need to uh, capitalize on it. And if elected, uh, I'll help do everything I can to promote it.
0: I'm going to pose a follow-up to both of you because I think you both uh, did a great job of explaining where you stand on promoting offshore wind But I want to emphasize the portion of the question that focuses on the differences um, in the 9th district and communities needs and um, some competition um, between communities uh, in the 9th district along this industry So um, can you focus a little bit on the differing needs of communities and positions and competitions of the communities within the 9th district? here in the cave right and how you um how you're going to handle that as a Congressperson. so i uh, will start with mr keating um and then we'll go to mr
2: Chadesky. well the, the this offshore wind project is so massive this will affect all the communities in our area provide uh, energy availability there as well so i don't look at this particular project that's uh, offshore is one side of the bridge uh, or the other side it's going to help both sides of the bridge uh, if you're talking about land-based uh, energy. I think we have to be reasonable when we do it in the congested area we do. I think there should be local controls over where these things are sited and where they're dealt with uh, as part of uh, us going forward. Uh, but uh, our future here uh, it won't be land-based. There will be piecemeal areas where we can go forward and it's acceptable, uh, but in terms of uh, wind power, uh, it's going to be out in the offshore area, uh, and it's going to have a beneficial effect on both sides of the bridge.
0: Just ask you the same
1: follow-up to you so relative to the competitive nature I don't really view this as a competitive thing I think we agree on this um, this is something that benefits the whole district um, so I think the questions that become where do you place these turbines offshore um, that have the least uh, detrimental effect to our fishermen and our uh, ecological system where you're worried about spills and things like that because they do house oil and things like that and but then the other important part is where does the lines come on shore I think that's one of the things we have arguments about uh, folks down the Cape. Uh, They killed uh, the Cape Wind Project, you know that. Um, So those are the things, but we need to make sure that people are involved on a local level uh, and be a part of the process itself. Make sure they understand the benefits and any potential drawbacks so we can help mitigate those drawbacks. Uh, But I think it's a dialogue, but I think it's a, I don't see this as an either-or. I think this is something that benefits everyone, something we need to do. Thank you.
0: Okay, so uh, moving on to our next question, uh, Mr. That question we'll start with you. Um, what approach would you take to address the crisis in student debt arising from the escalating cost of higher education? Um, what role do you see for the federal government in supporting higher education and how would you support investment in it?
1: So, a couple of things. There's a couple of components to it. Um, one of them is the fact that uh, colleges, uh, what they're charging today is just it's, it's absorbed it's, it's crazy. Um, and When we talk about the federal government's involvement, the federal government's really the one responsible for sort of overseeing and dictating student loans. Um, I have my campaign manager, for example, who still has a student loan, and he pays 11% on the student loan. He's got a great credit rating, but he's not able to get that uh, interest rate lower. Um, That's just insane. I'm not for debt forgiveness of student loans, but I gotta tell you, we can do a hell of a lot better than we're doing today to make sure that we lower the cost by getting interest rates where they need to be and more reasonable if we expect people to be able to repay this. Um, secondly, I think we need to hold uh, schools to task, particularly schools that may benefit from federal funding. And we ought to set some sort of a guideline. Let's start a measurement, or, a, or we have a uh, sort of a, a baseline where you say the average student, for example, graduating from this college can expect to make blank. Okay. And as a proportion of that, this is how much it costs to go to that college. When those ratios get too out of whack, guess what? We cut off any federal funding that would benefit that university till they come back in line. Uh, This isn't an either or. There is a lot of different moving parts here that are involved in making sure that we're able to make higher education available. The other things that are sort of out of the box thinking, the things like Governor Baker does again, (coughs) helping people in high school earn their college credits, um, promoting things like vocational training and giving people options um, so i think um, all of those things um, sort of together will help to stop rein in uh the cost of a college education not only what we pay but what we owe moving forward in terms of interest and things like that
0: thank you,
2: thank you well thank you one thing we don't want to do is waste money so one of the things we've been able to get secure grants for for our district or that transition uh, areas where we are able to take at-risk students coming out of high school and making sure there's support for them, uh, so that they can make that adjustment better. Uh, that way, they'll be able to go on, and that money won't be wasted. Now, I'm the original. I'm one of the original co-sponsors on uh, the legislation that would allow uh, people with student loans to negotiate down. We were getting over six percent in interest. The government was getting that uh, while interest rates uh, were one and two percent. Uh, That should have been done. Uh, I was a sponsor when that was first introduced a few Congresses ago and continue to to support that. Uh, I also think there's a couple of great examples right here in our own state and our own region. I think we should do more to encourage and incentivize relief of student loans by work uh, in terms of public service work, for instance. We had someone, because of the UMass program that allows that, that was able to get relief from their uh, tuition loans by working with us in public service. We got a great employee, uh, it worked well. Uh, Otherwise, he wouldn't have been attracted perhaps to this public service job. It was a win-win situation. And finally, we have the two plus two program right here in Massachusetts and in this area uh, where you can go in our state system for two years community college, two years for four-year college, and get a four-year degree. And you know what the combined tuition for that, for instance, is at UMass? $30,000, not $30,000 a semester, $30,000 for the four years. We're showing here in Massachusetts that those uh, opportunities are there for people. That's something we should encourage throughout the entire country.
0: Okay, thank you. So our next question um, uh, goes to Congressman Keating first. Uh, If Democrats can gain control of the House, impeachment may be on the table. Would you support impeachment? I've
2: talked in caucus uh, when the issue has come up, uh, because you've heard there's some members that that are talking about it. I've taken uh, the stand of talking up, telling my colleagues, and I've taken a leadership role in this. Look, I was a district attorney. Uh, I understand how uh, these things work. And I also understand in our country right now, impeachment can't be something that's bandied about administration to administration. You can't, if you lose an election, you can't turn around and say, oh, we're going to start impeachment if you're on the other side. We have to be very careful about that. It's a high standard. And I argue to my colleagues, as I'll say now, uh, follow the evidence. If there's evidence there for it, fine. Let's see what happens with the Mueller investigation, for instance. We don't know if it'll rise to that level. But we shouldn't be talking about this right now. Uh, It's making it political, not dealing with the important issue it is and the rare opportunities where that should even be exercised. That's the way we should view this. Uh, and, and I hope uh, many of my colleagues have listened to me, uh, I think people have come to me after I've spoken with a lot of them and said, you really changed my mind on this. I think uh, we've got to look at this very carefully. So uh, I'm using my influence uh, among colleagues uh, to share my experience uh, from a law enforcement standpoint just what this should be. and. Uh, Hopefully, uh, I was helpful to my colleagues in expressing what I truly believe we have to be very sensitive to. Thank
0: you, Mr. Zeweski.
1: I applaud Congressman Keating's pragmatism. I think that's the right approach. Um, I have not seen anything that would lead me to believe that impeachment's the way uh, we should be going. Um, I also do support the Mueller investigation, because I think at the end of the day, what we really want to do is restore confidence in our system. Uh, People want to make sure, they want to know that their vote counts, and they want to feel that there is no meddling. Um, But uh, there's nothing I've seen, uh, to me, at this point, uh, that would uh, lead me to believe that uh, we should be looking at impeachment. Um, I do believe it's a political football that gets tossed around. It gets people on both sides of the aisle worked up. Uh, But it really detracts us from looking at the real important issues that we have today. Um, But if and when um, something came up and it was impeachable, um, no one's above the law. That's just the way it is. Uh, But right now, I think it's irresponsible.
0: Okay, I'm just going to follow up with my moderator's prerogative here to make sure yes or no for both of you. I think the answer here for both – well, this isn't a yes or no, I guess. The answer for both of you is not yet for impeachment, correct?
2: Correct.
0: And then the second question I'd like to follow up on a yes or no. Um, Will you support the continuation of the Mueller investigation? Mr. Keating.
2: Absolutely. You know, I've worked very hard on this. I've been involved in uh, resolutions and uh, been involved in uh, legislation to try and uh, make sure that's there. I think it would be a smart thing for Congress uh, to clear the air about this. Our rule of law is being attacked. Uh, and, and that's one of the things I mentioned with my opening remarks. That hurts democracy. that That's our core belief, rule of law. I would like to see legislation clear the air and say uh, that there shouldn't be uh, a firing of Mueller in that regard. That would, I think, bring some stability. It would send a mesh- message to countries like Russia that have tried to meddle and make our democracy look like it's not as stable and strong as it it would send a strong message to them as well.
0: Mr. Teske, I will also give you a minute.
1: Yeah, I support the Mueller investigation, and I I think, uh, look, at the end of the day, we need to restore confidence in our system. We need to learn from this. Uh, We need to get a better understanding of, I think uh, most of us would agree, we feel that the Russians did uh, uh, meddle in our election. To what extent remains to be seen. We need to learn what they did and more importantly we need to understand what they may be trying to do in the future to make sure that we can prevent it from happening so that we can feel good about our electoral system that is at the heart of our republican democracy
0: thank you okay so our next question is about infrastructure uh mr Janeski. this question first goes to you what is your philosophy of how infrastructure including commuter rail should be financed Um, Is there a role for the federal government here? Should this primarily be a state responsibility? Or do you see privatization of infrastructure as the way to go?
1: So I think, there's, I, I think there's, there's three ways you can actually look at it. Uh, certainly there are, are roles and opportunities for the federal government to be involved in infrastructure. Infrastructure meaning many different things. Let's take the case of seawalls, for example, which are very important uh, to this area. Uh, that's the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, we need to be working with them. And the federal government needs to be involved to make sure that we, uh, our seawalls are up to snuff. And we can't just wait till after there's been a catastrophic event. Um, we be, need to be proactive about it. When it comes to things like, let's say, replacing the Cape Cod bridges, um, those are over 80 years old, by the way. Many of you probably have taken those bridges. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of question out there as to when is end of life. Um, if I'm elected, by the end of my first term, you'll have a plan. You'll know two things. One, how much longer we can expect to safely use those bridges? How much is it going to cost to maintain them during that time? And B, what's the plan look like for replacing them? Um, So, but in the case of uh, something like that, um, certainly federal government can help with funding. Some people would say state, Uh, we can look at things like um, public-private relationships, like they have. They've done some uh, down south, where they've done bridge uh, projects that have been, uh, it's a public-private partnership. Um, Something like the Cape Cod bridges, this talks about tolls. If we're gonna consider something like tolls to help pay for the bridges, um, I think we need to make sure that it does not affect residents. That residents are not adversely affected by it, just folks that are coming for vacation, things like that. But, um, so I think anything's on the table, but the fact of the matter is we need to keep and maintain um, our safe infrastructure. Thank you.
0: Congressman Keating, the uh, the, uh, infrastructure.
1: The report of the
2: bridges will be forthcoming. And there's no doubt in my mind it will be replacements necessary. Uh, we've worked hard on that area. I've worked with the Army Corps of Engineers and state government and the chambers of commerce affected by those bridges uh, on, a, on a daily basis, seemingly. seemingly and uh, which brings me to the question that, the $700 or $800 million projected uh, to do this, uh, that's going to be very tough to get federally. And the reason is uh, actions have consequences. Paying for a tax break. thats not a tax break. Most of the people here that own a home, by the way, are going to pay more taxes. They're going to find out uh, under the bill more taxes. But that was $2.3 trillion unfunded, over one-tenth of the entire national debt right there. That hurts our ability to deal with infrastructure issues. And we should realize that and make sure, you know, we're prudent and make sure we have our priorities right. Right here in our area, though, with infrastructure, uh, we put over uh, $6.6 million into the New Bedford Airport to make sure that is there for possible freight transportation and help our industry in that infrastructure. I mentioned the hurricane barriers that were there that are so important for our navigation in the harbor. I mentioned the dredging. Uh, the private Bridge and Fall River, half a, a billion dollars uh, for that, That's under, and here's something you don't think of when you think of in, infrastructure, CDBG block grants, where the communities have so much to say about how that money is spent, much of that is spent on infrastructure, uh, fixing up public properties, fixing up housing, uh, having development occur that really emanates from what the cities and towns themselves say they want very important thing that's been cut and that I've fought hard for. Uh, also, in terms of trying to deal with uh, having the jobs to support that infrastructure, uh, we started uh, an avionics uh, pilot program so that we have the jobs on the private side to help go forward and, and deal with the industries that are going to provide that kind of infrastructure that we need.
0: Okay, I'm going to do a brief follow-up here. i start with Mr. Jesse. of an issue that Mr. King raised, uh, and I'll ask you uh, for a minute on this. Um, your opinion on the, uh, the tax cuts, um, the federal budget deficit, and President Trump's proposal for additional tax cuts?
1: So, relative to the tax cuts, um, first of all, uh, I wasn't there, uh, didn't go for it. But I got to tell you one of the things, and um, the Congressman's right, although by most estimates, uh, about 80% of folks in Massachusetts have benefited from the tax cuts. Uh, certainly, a lot of businesses have benefited as well. Um, but, you know, one of the things we didn't have in those tax cuts was considerations for SALT, state and local tax deductions. Um, those were actually capped. And because we didn't have someone at the table fighting for us, a lot of you were paying double taxes in a lot of ways. Um, that's just wrong. Uh, I would have fought to make sure that SALT, state and local tax deductions, were included as part of that bill. And by the way, if they weren't, I certainly would have considered not voting for that bill. Um, the other thing is relative to the deficit itself, I think it remains to be seen. Um, We have very low uh, unemployment. We have more job openings. We have people looking for jobs right now. And uh, I'm hoping that that is going to help fill the gap um, that we see that the the Congressman alluded to. Um, And if it doesn't, over time, like any piece of legislation, over time, we need to make changes. And perhaps we need to tweak the tax bill. Um, But uh, certainly the fact that uh, we didn't have someone fighting for us for state and local taxes um, was not a good thing. Uh, Congressman Keating, I'll allow
0: you one minute as well to talk about the Further, the tax cuts a deficit, and also President Trump's proposal for additional
2: tax cuts. I'll start with the tax cuts. It's not going to happen. We're not in session. So uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, that's easy. Uh, dealing with the tax bill, this is serious stuff. Six percent of it so far, we've been monitoring, actually went to employees, including one-time bonuses. Ninety-four percent went to stock buybacks, the largest portion of that, uh, and the, the very rich among us. Uh, they weren't even asking for this. You know, and... That's going to benefit the corporations. Oil and gas, they just did a study. The tax break that these huge corporations got mirrored their profits. Exactly. So you know where it went. Uh, and you know what? When you're talking about America first, remember this. Those corporations getting these huge tax cuts, a third of them are foreign entities, foreign people. So that money's going right out of the country as well. Uh, in terms of the salt issue, if you own a home, you're in this district, odds are uh, you're going to be paying more in taxes uh, as well. But the biggest point is this. How are we going to pay the $2.3 trillion that wasn't funded for this? We know the answer. Cut Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Mitch McConnell just last week said that. Paul Ryan already said that. All right, thank you. We
0: have time for... Uh maybe one or two more questions here, so um, let's get right into the next one. Um, Congressman Keeney, you're first on this. Uh, New Bedford and Fall River have enjoyed a renaissance um, through investment in arts programs and venues like AHA, the Narrows, and the Saturian Performing Arts Centers. Such programs require or have grew with the support of public investment. What role do you see for the federal government in these programs locally and in the arts more generally?
2: Well, the arts, uh, they're a, uh, uh, they produce more money they're a leverage maker, they're a multiplier. And that's a fact. Investments in the arts and culture produce more public-private sponsorship. So you put a dollar in, you get several dollars back. And the effect on the economy is enormous. So I'm a a huge supporter of this. Uh, I've seen it work. And there's probably, frankly, no better place to see how this has worked than where we are right now. Uh, A small leveraged uh, amount of money and uh, supported the arts and culture here in New Bedford has just transformed the, the whole character of this region. In fact, I believe in, 200, in 2017, just last year, when they were ranking uh, the cities and, and towns in this commonwealth uh, in terms of their, their ability uh, for growth in the arts, they named New Bedford uh, as the number one in that regard. So you can see what happens uh, in, a, in a community when there's a little bit of leveraging there and how it pays off.
1: So I think arts are very important. Obviously they're critical and this is a perfect place for arts. Um, visiting Union Street, um, I've had opportunities to visit some of the new art galleries. If we're going to continue that, we need a couple of things. We need to make sure there's affordable housing um, for artisans. And we also need to make sure there's affordable workshops for them to work in. You've got, um, so many older buildings here that are really very well and uh, cost effectively repurposed for that. Um, and then you also have another great thing. You've got, there's this, there's this livelihood right here in New Bedford, recently I participated in a judging contest for something called E for All. Basically what it is, is a great entrepreneurial organization that helps young entrepreneurs, um, young people that want to set up studios, restaurants and other things, get their start. It's sort of like a shark tank for folks in this New Bedford area. Those are the type of things we need to do to foster the entrepreneurial spirit, but it starts with making sure that we have affordable housing, affordable workspaces for the arts. Um, that is a very good thing. Uh, for the veteran, it's a very good thing for our region.
0: Okay, we're going to do one final question here, um, and that's about the opioid epidemic. Uh, Mr. Shesky, you'll we'll start. Um, opioid overdoses continue at alarming rates in the state, this region, across the country. Um, the current uh, administration, both at the state and the national level, has taken some steps to address this crisis. Um, but what more do you think the federal government could be doing to help the states and local governments address this problem?
1: So this is an issue that um, hits close to home, and it's one of the things we go out and we speak to people throughout the district. We hear it time and time again. There are probably very few, if any, people in this audience tonight who haven't been personally affected by the opioid epidemic. I lost a nephew who died to a heroin overdose, and I have a sister that's a recovering addict. Um, So I know about it firsthand. There's a lot of things that we can do. Um, Governor Baker took a leadership role in our state, and one of the things he did was he destigmatized opioid addiction and allow people to come out of the shadows to get the help that they need and deserve. That's a great start. Um, Next, what we need to do on a federal level is make sure that we've got the adequate beds because one of the things we're doing is we're sending people into recovery for seven to 10 days. Guess what? That's not enough. They're gonna come out. Recently, I gotta tell you, I was at the Plymouth Correctional Facility in Plymouth going through, meeting with them, seeing how everything goes. They've got a great program for people to come in uh, to the facility with with, uh, opioid or alcohol addiction. and they treat them and they give them the help they need. We also need to make sure that we're providing adequate resources to get people the help they need after they're out of recovery. Because a lot of the problems we're seeing are things we just, um, we can't see them. Um, They're in here. Um, These are people that are hurting. Um, Sometimes vocational training can help as well, uh, but there's certainly a lot more we can be doing. And it's one of those issues. It's the morally right thing to do, number one, but if that's not enough for you, let me tell you something. Again, it goes back to what my wife says, pay me now or pay me later. We're losing a whole generation. People are hurting. We need to do more. We can do more, and if elected, I want to be Governor Baker's uh, partner on Capitol Hill. He's part of uh, President Trump's opioid task force. I want to take a lot of the things that Governor Baker's done here, spread them nationally, but I also want to make sure that he continues to get the funding he needs to combat opioids on our shores here in Massachusetts.
0: Representative Katie.
2: Well, thank you. I've also lost a family member and have another family member a decade and a half into recovery, uh, which is great news. I also saw other people I didn't know lose uh, uh, loved ones. As a district attorney, we investigate uh, unattended deaths. Uh, I found out early on uh, that people were, there was no criminal history whatsoever, were dying, and we traced the history from prescription drugs to heroin to overdoses. Uh, I worked hard. You know the woman on the baker ad that you see on television, uh, Joanne Peterson? Uh, she knows that a decade and a half ago, I started one of the first task forces here, uh, and she's uh, told me that uh, if it hadn't been for her, her organization that helps families may never have gotten off the ground. I've worked with her, I've worked with many other people. We have to deal with this in a multifaceted way. Quickly, so hard to do this so fast. Uh, I'll tell you, besides the task force uh, that we had, we have to deal with education. I did it as a DA in the schools, and we're getting money through SAMHSA programs right now to deal with it uh, in our schools right here in our district. Over <coughs> prescription, I changed the law I had laws changed two or three times uh, already in different areas, helping veterans who are twice as apt to be uh, affected by this, requiring mandatory education for prescribers, having a veterans toolkit that's shared on the private side with other hospitals and prescribers. I've dealt with interdiction, talking to people all the way to Hong Kong and Homeland Security in charge of this, trying to fight this. Uh, I've also changed the law to have takeaway programs so that we take the drugs that's in the medicine cabinet and get them out of there and take it away. I changed the federal law so community groups can now be funded for doing that. And dealing with Narcan, I dealt with uh, dual prescription uh, law changes where uh, doctors can now prescribe Narcan with uh, people that are chronically ill and and, and using this. Uh, And I also had, that's become law now. I've also dealt with uh, an issue of uh, those non-prescribed drugs. So family members can deal with that. That passed the house and hasn't gone through the Senate as yet. It's a mouthful, Uh, it's an important issue, one of the most important uh, uh, that I deal with uh, and uh, will meet some success despite the fentanyl problem bringing us back to deaths.
0: Thank you. Um, Now we're going to have the challenge of summarizing everything in half the time. One minute closing statements. We're getting there. But prior to closing statements, um, I'd like to thank everyone for for joining us this evening, for attending tonight's event. I'd also like to thank the South Coast Alliance for organizing this debate and the Whaling Museum for hosting this. Um, At this point in time, each candidate will have the chance to offer a one minute closing statement. Um, and it's my understanding that Congressman Keating will be going first with the closing statement. Thank you, and
2: thank you all uh, for being here. Uh, you know, uh, I think I made my case in terms of why this is the import- most important election. Not to tell the people here to get out to vote, but encourage people to vote early, and do it, please. There's so much at stake. So much at stake in terms of our health care rights right here. Uh, where uh, taking away and losing those will have a dramatic effect on people. But I can't. Uh, I'm going off my regular remarks because uh, we all heard the news today. Uh, We all heard about the bombings. Is this what our country has come to? Uh, Live ammunition and bombs uh, targeted to people uh, involved, uh, as Peter and I are, uh, in in the political setting, trying to commit to public service. We have to do better than that. And and I want to take this moment uh, on our fourth debate uh, to say thank you uh, to Peter, uh, I think, that I speak for both of us, that we have worked hard to have our debates be civil, to have an understanding uh, of any differences in issues, but to do it in a way uh, that really breeds respect for our rule of law and our electoral process. So I'm going to thank you for that, uh, and I want to just uh, say we all have to work at this. Uh, any of those bombs could have gone off uh, if it wasn't for the Secret Service, lies within we
0: have to do better, thank you. Thank
1: you, Mr. Faske. I want to thank Congressman Keating for his years of service. Uh, as he said, we've had four debates, they've all been very civil. And I think we agree, We talked earlier today, the fact of the matter is when you talk in a civil way, what we both really want is for you to hear what it is we have to say. And the fact is, when we're not respectful of each other, we're not respectful to you. And when we're not respectful to you, you're never going to hear the message, and that's the important thing. Um, Look, I'm one of the reasons I'm running is because we've got a broken Congress, 19% approval rating. Partisan bickering is part of the problem. Um, I want to be part of the solution for you. Uh, We need to have term limits in place, folks. I've agreed to serve no more than three. I've signed a pledge. I will push for term limits because I want to get people in Congress focused back on you again, and also to get money out of the equation. We've talked about the importance of money. Are eating. You know, 52% of his money comes from PACS and special interest, 1% of mine does, um, and, and part of, I'm not blaming you, but part of it is you're in there for that long, these are the things that happen. We need to get that out of the system, um, but I appreciate everything that he's done, I appreciate this ability, and uh, I want to thank you all the entire time for inviting us here, and thank you for your service, Congress. Thank you,
0: everyone.